Hey, good morning, everyone. Welcome to church. So glad you're here. My name is Matthew. I'm the lead pastor here at Emmanuel, and it's wonderful. Uh, man, it's so good to just stand in the back and uh, watch you all worship and worship along with you. I'm so grateful for what a gift our band is uh, to, to be here with you. My heart is full. Um, hey, I want to, if you're watching from home, this is for you, but it's also for you. But uh, welcome, by the way, if you're watching from home. Uh, we have uh, been live streaming the 11 o'clock service, and we're moving that to the 9 o'clock service. Uh, and the reason is, is because we've heard from a number of people who are home watching our live stream that actually uh, it's kind of late. So we're like, yeah, that's fine. We'll start live streaming the 9. We're going to do communion outside still from 10.15 to 10.45. So if you want to watch the service and then come and receive communion, you can do that. Um, and then it'll be available still at 11 o'clock because I believe YouTube just publishes these things basically as soon as they're done. So I think that's how YouTube works. So if you're watching this from home, next week we'll be on at 9 o'clock. All right, I'm going to pray, um, but before I do that, I'm going to read the Bible. Um, we're going to read Mark chapter 6. I'm going to read verses 13 through, um, or 7 to 13. So Jesus called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two. He gave them authority over unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you and they refuse to hear you as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. And so they went out and proclaimed that all should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we um, receive this word today as your word to us. We just want to, in faith, just from the beginning, say we believe, God, you're speaking, and that one of the primary ways you speak to us is through this book, and we believe that this word that was given to us today in the lectionary chosen a long time ago comes to us with the presence of God and the Holy Spirit, and so we just want to be attentive to it and listen and trust that you have something you're saying over our lives. Help us to listen and have open ears, soft hearts. God, we also just want to take a minute and pray for those in Haiti right now who have experienced tremendous upheaval this last week with the assassination of their president. God, we ask that you would please quell the violence. We pray for those who are innocent but find themselves in the midst of a war zone. We ask, Lord, for your shelter to protect them. We pray for our family members down there, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that you would let them be um, instruments of peace, that they would be uh, places of hospitality. Help them to know how to love their neighbors well. God, keep them safe. Keep all who are in danger safe. And Father, we just ask that whoever has power in this moment to step in and with wisdom to stabilize this very destabilized country, we ask God that you would equip them with that wisdom. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And on all those who are Haitian who find themselves here in our country watching this violence from afar, we just pray for their hearts. Would you comfort them, God? So worried about friends and family back home. Jesus, all these things we lift to you because you are sovereign and big enough to handle all of it, and we trust you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So um, if Jesus was born in 1990, then right about now he would be beginning his ministry. 
So that kind of helps you like figure out how much older than Jesus you are. Um, he, he would be, he'd be 30, 31. He'd be beginning his ministry right about now. And, um, and if he was beginning his ministry right now, he would have a whole lot of tools at his disposal that he did not have back then, right? I mean, mass communication and media has made it so that really anyone can get, I mean, literally anyone can get a message out to literally anyone anywhere in the world and can gain a following there. In fact, there are um, many hundreds, perhaps thousands of, of Instagram influencers who have audiences and followings far larger and greater than the most powerful and influential celebrities and leaders in the history of humanity. And that's all because of this wonderful little thing that we carry around with us. And it's just made it so that people can have and attract large followings all over the place. My daughters, who are both teenagers, they'll ask me every once in a while, like, who's your favorite influencer now, Dad? And I'm, it's the same answer as always. No one. I don't know what an influencer, like, I don't know what that is. Is that uh, Kendall Jenner? Is she an influencer? And they're like, yes, she's an influencer. I was like, I'll go with Kendall. So it's like, I, I don't understand like the world we're living in, and probably most of you don't either. But if Jesus was living in this world today, he would have a lot of things at his disposal that would make it easy for all of us to just have the direct experience of him, his voice, his face, be the thing that we were looking at and, and, and learning from. And, and I think most of us would say, that would be really nice. I would love for there to be a YouTube channel full of videos of his teachings and miracles and also some, you know, candid shots of him pulling pranks on the disciples on the bus, you know, as they drive around. Well, whatever it is, it would just be nice to have like that sort of presence. But Jesus, because he came when he came, and I believe he came when he came on purpose, Jesus made that impossible. He made it necessary from the very beginning that in order for his message to be multiplied, it was going to have to come through people. He wasn't going to be able to be the brand. It was going to have to be messengers, apostles, disciples. And that makes a lot of sense because that's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who learns what the master, the rabbi knows, so that they can do what the rabbi does. And you, if you're a Christian in here, are a disciple, a person who is learning the way of Jesus so that you can walk in the way of Jesus, so that you can do the things that Jesus did in your context so that you can take the message of Jesus, the life of Jesus, and multiply it. And Kirkwood, and Decatur, and Tucker, and Lilburn, and Grant Park, so that you can be the extension of that presence. Um, we're going to look at this text. We just have four headings that we'll just work our way through. Um, and I got to admit, like as I looked at this text and it came to me this week, I had this thought. I was like, oh man, I don't know what I don't know how relevant this is going to feel. Um, then I preached at the nine. I'm like, oh, I think this is actually very relevant. I'm very excited. I think that God is speaking a word over your life today. I think that what God is calling you to really matters. And he's speaking a word of, of, of vocation over your life today. And it's not going to mean that tomorrow you go in and quit your job. It's going to mean that actually we understand the, the life in which we are living, whether that is changing diapers or driving Uber or making significant legal decisions for a corporation, that we in all of those places can be the embodiment of this calling and this vocation in that space. So we're going to begin with this idea. Jesus calls 12 people, and I just want to say from the beginning, we're all the 12. We're all the 12. It's easy for us to read the Bible and to price ourselves out of stories all the time because we're like, well, this doesn't apply to me. So we were just reading the story and it's like, and then he called the 12 and we go, oh, this isn't about me. It's about someone else. But I'm going to say it is about you and I'm going to give you two very heady reasons why. The first is theological and the second is biblical. You say, aren't those the same things? No, they're not. So first, theological. Why am I sure that Jesus is actually calling you to be a part of this? 
Because Jesus, when he picked 12 disciples, 12 apostles, it wasn't a random number. It wasn't like his favorite number growing up. He picked 12 because it was a reenactment of something that had happened a long time before. Abraham had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons with four women. It's a messy story. But those 12 sons, Judah and Naphtali, Gad, Benjamin, Asher, and so on, these 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel is the nation in which God's particular dwelling exists so that the world could experience the God of Israel through Israel. Always remember, when we talk about election, if you've been in the church for a while, you've heard about election, election is usually a term that's meant to like, designate who's inside and who's outside. Election in the Bible is the people through whom God is revealing himself. If you're a part of the elect people of God, the nation of Israel, the chosen people, that means you're picked to be to the world the light that calls people to the true God. That's what it means to be elect. Nothing less than that. So Jesus is reconstituting a new Israel. He's essentially saying, let's start this thing over. Twelve new guys. We're going to rebuild Israel, the elect people through whom the world will know the one and true God. So there's a theological reason that I can say this is true. It's because each one of you are a part of that nation now. You have, as part of your forebearers, essentially, one of those patriarchs, in a sense. It's kind of a stretch, but you get what I'm saying. He's starting over this whole idea, like we're going to build a new thing together. We're going to make, we're going to make the presence on, of God on the earth known through the elect people of God. So that's the theological reason. The second reason is biblically, I know Jesus was not limiting this call to 12 people because if you keep reading the Bible, you keep reading the New Testament, you'll see that at the end of his life, he calls everyone. He calls everyone who's around him, women, men, slave, free, Jew, Gentile, barbarian, Scythian, they all get called into this life. Everyone is called to go out to make disciples, to heal the sick, to be representatives of Christ, to preach the gospel, to call to repentance. And then Jesus gives three sets of instructions. So first of all, just to kind of back up, we're all the 12, which means this is about you. You're like, it's not about me. I have a lot on my plate right now. I know. Um, So did they, and so do I. This is about you. One of the things the church has mistakenly done for years is like we've put people in the vocational categories. We have like professional Christians like me who get called to do this sort of work, and then we have everyone else. It's not true. We're all called into this. And so Jesus gives three sets of instructions for uh, how we're to go about this work. He says, uh, first of all, um, I don't know, what does he say? He says, first of all, how we're to go, and then to whom we are to go, and then what we are to do when we get there. How we are to go. He says, take one tunic. Take one tunic, which is um, a way for Jesus to tell his disciples, I want you to go out um, not self-sufficient. I want you to go out in a way that you're going to be utterly dependent on others to see how God is going to provide for you. He says, don't take money. Don't take uh, like a wallet. Wear one pair of shoes. He prefers sandals. Uh, He says, only wear one tunic. Don't take two tunics. And the whole point of this is like, I want you to go out and be dependent on the generosity of others and see how God's going to take care of you. So from the beginning, you know that this isn't like your big thing you're doing. Now, what's really interesting, if you read Luke, uh, one of the other Gospels, he gives that same instruction, and then later at the end of Luke, he gives the exact opposite instruction. He's like, do you remember how I said, take no wallet? And they're like, yes. He's like, take a wallet next time. He's like, do you remember how I said, take one tunic? They're like, yes. He's like, take two tunics next time, and maybe a sword. And we're like, what? And And he never answers. He's just like, he says, that's enough. Yeah, a couple swords is great. And so 
I'm not going to make a huge deal out of this that Jesus wants all of us to be poor. Rather to say, Jesus is going to at times call us into seasons of plenty and seasons of want, and both of them are opportunities for us to learn something about the heart of God. And I don't know what season you're in right now. I don't know if you're like barely scraping by like paycheck to paycheck and like one major repair on the car, one major repair on the house, and you're kind of thrown upside down and you don't know where the money's coming from. Or if you find yourself in a relative place of plenty and you're able to be part of that extension of generosity to others. But I will say probably all of us at one time in our life, unless we're just born into immense wealth, are going to find ourselves in a place of need and that there's a deep grace in that. God's teaching us lessons in that. He wants you to understand something about the nature of the world, and that is that you live utterly dependent on someone to take care of you, and that's good, that you don't have to be so self-sufficient. You don't have to be so grown up all the time. There's actually a goodness in recognizing the grace and the generosity of God through people. When I was 10 years old, my dad lost his job for the first time. And it was 1991, I think. And so you may not remember, but like we had just, like we were wrapping up the Persian Gulf War. George H.W. was immensely popular, but then there was a huge recession. And I just remember a ton of dads in my church just all started losing their jobs. Bang, bang, bang. And it started this sort of cycle of job loss because once you lose your job once, then you go back and then you're like the, new, the newest person in the company and the economy was pretty unstable. And it's the reason that H.W. lost the election and Bill Clinton won because he had to go back and his whole, no, read my lips, no new taxes. And most of you weren't even alive for that, but I'm just telling you that all happened. And my dad lost his job, and we were like pretty caught off guard by it because we had been, and I didn't really recognize this, but incredibly blessed. We were just climbing up the ladder of middle class goodness. We had everything we wanted. We could play any sport we wanted. We had whatever toy we wanted. We lived in a great neighborhood. It had both a swim and tennis in that neighborhood. We were just incredibly privileged people, and suddenly things were changing. Our lifestyle had to change, and I'm not doing a boo-hoo upper middle class story. I'm just telling you, at the time, it was unsettling, and my parents, who had always had more than what they needed since they'd been sort of on their own, had to learn how to live in dramatic limitations. And because of that, they became people who could learn to live and depend on God for everything. And I still remember, like, all the way through the 90s, my mom walking into our house, because my dad, I think, ended up losing his job four or five times over the course of 10 years. It was a very long season for our family. And, like, my mom walking in with, like, envelopes from the mailbox with money in it, just enough money to cover the next bill that was coming up or to buy groceries for us. Or the Christmas when our community group, my parents' community group, came in unannounced with trash bags full of presents, and that was our Christmas that year because they didn't have any money to buy presents for us. And these might seem like small things, but they ended up becoming big lessons where I learned, and still today, Rebecca and I have to remind ourselves of this, but we always have enough. There's just, oh, it's not, it's not everything you want. It's not everything you want. I want two tunics. I like the two tunic lifestyle. Most of us enjoy that second tunic, knowing it's there, but God is going to give us what we need. He's going to take care of us in the most essential and necessary ways, and Jesus is training his disciples to live in this way because he wants them to experience the grace and the goodness of it. Blessed are the poor, he says. Blessed are the poor, for they shall see the kingdom of God. And so he says, take one tunic with you. Put yourself in a place of actual need and experience God's deliverance. Again, this isn't a call on all of us to go home and sell our second tunics. Enjoy that tunic. Wear it tonight, maybe, to, so to dinner or something. But for those of us who find ourselves in a place of need, recognize the grace in it and begin to adopt eyes and say, God, what are you teaching me about the gospel in this? How are you forming my heart to trust you more? 
The second thing he says is, you, is this is to whom you are to go. Essentially, he says you need to know when it is time to stay and when it's time to leave. Now, in, the, in another gospel, he, he gives an extended um, like teaching on this segment. He says, when you go into a village, go into a house and say to the house, my peace rests on this house. And Jesus says, I love this, the imagery so much. He says, if there is a man of peace in the house, your peace will rest on him. I don't know what that looks like, but I imagine it was obvious. Um, your peace will rest on him. But he says, if there's not a man of peace in the house, your peace will come back to you. And you're like, I'm taking that. And then you leave. And so Jesus essentially is saying, I need you to go to places where you're going to find a receptive audience. And if you find yourself in a context in which the audience is not receptive, you don't have to force your way in. It's not going to be helpful. In fact, Jesus says, it's time for you to go in that situation. Now, in our context today, what does that look like? Because probably none of you have ever walked into a house and said, my peace I give to this house. But what does it look like for us to just be those sorts of people who invite people into peace, but it's not always going to be received? How do we do that? There's a whole lot of people today who are demanding a hearing about everything all the time. And they're just demanding it sort of in a vacuum. They're saying, like, I will be heard. I will be listened to. It's not bad, necessarily, because mostly it's coming from people who have had their voice taken away from them for lots of reasons. And so there's a, there's a lot of people demanding a hearing who deserve to be heard. But do you know what's to be heard? But do you know what's not happening? Listening. No one's listening to anyone. Because what's happening is that we're constantly communicating within this context of an emotional system of chronic anxiety. So Dr. Edwin Friedman, who's a psychologist we love to quote here, he wrote the book Failure of Nerve, which we love to quote here. He talks about how we need to understand when you're saying something to someone, you're not just communicating a fact to their brain. You are communicating something that has emotional baggage with it to a person who's enveloped in an emotional system that is predominantly defined by anxiety. So if you find yourself communicating something that isn't landing, that someone isn't understanding, whether that's a close family member or a spouse or some troll on the internet, whatever it is, the reason why your message isn't getting in is not because it's not true necessarily, although it may not be, but it's because you are, you're, you're communicating in a way in which there's all this other noise. So he says it this way specifically. He says, whether you're a parent, a minister, a healer, a CEO, your communicant's capacity to hear you depends primarily on the emotional variables of direction. That is what direction are they going? Their distance, how far from you are they? That's not actual proximity, but like how far emotionally from you and anxiety. Others can only hear you when they are moving toward you. Do you hear that? That's huge. Others can only hear you when they are moving towards you. If you have a friend or a family member who's been trapped in addiction, you know this is true. Others can only hear you when they are moving towards you, no matter how eloquently you phrase the message. In other words, as long as you are in the pursuing, rescuing, coercive position, your message, no matter how eloquently broadcast, will never catch up. And as for the anxiety, it is the static in the communication system, this is such a great image, that can distort or scramble any message. It cannot be eliminated simply by turning up the volume, since that invariably also turns up the static. Messages in families, in consultation processes, or in organizational directives come through less because of the quality of their content than because of the emotional envelope in which they are delivered. Now, why do I say all that? Jesus is very realistic. He says, if you just simply walk in and demand a hearing, there's a good chance you're going to be rejected. I don't believe that Jesus is saying, and good riddance to those people forever. I don't believe that's what Friedman is saying, although I care less what he's saying. 
I don't believe Jesus is saying, like, you need, to, you need to decide really quick. Are you in or you're out? Okay, you're out. I'm writing you off. Goodbye. Eat my dust. That's not what he's saying here. But I think he is saying, like, what have you done to actually earn a hearing? Like, how have you actually, like, invested in a relationship? Or how have you been present? The way that Peter talks about it later in the New Testament, he's just like, you need to be ready to give an explanation for the hope that you have. So like, let your life be provocative in such a way that people ask questions of you, not that you come in demanding to be heard. I think that we all could probably learn, I could learn that actually demanding to be heard is not what we need to be doing right now. Willing to listen, willing to be corrected, willing to be challenged, that would be really, that would go a long way. And maybe if we started there, we wouldn't have the gears so locked down right now. No one is listening to anyone right now. Everyone is so dug in on their worldview. There's no room to grow or flex or wiggle at all. And the church of Jesus Christ needs to be peacemakers in the middle of this. And that doesn't mean placators. That doesn't mean people who say, peace, peace, when there is no peace. That means people who come in and learn to do the work of building bridges and and fostering conversation and letting people learn and move towards one another Jesus says, you need to know to whom you're going. Your job is not first and foremost to come and demand. This is why we say our, our, our mission here, or one of our values is to be a faithful presence. This is what it is to be a faithful presence in a space, to be here for the long term and to be committed. I want the conversations that I get to have with our neighbors first where I live and where I work to be things that have grown up over the long haul of them experiencing me as a human being. And then you have something to talk about. So whether you're making art or you're selling coffee, or you're raising kids, or you're walking dogs, or you're selling houses, you're managing finances, all of us have an opportunity in our context to be a faithful presence of Jesus in that space. Finally, Jesus gives us a call, and it's twofold. I'm going to quickly try to go through these. It's a call. It's, it's a, the twofold work. It's a call to repentance, and it's the work of healing and liberation. So first, the call to repentance. If there was something that we are uncomfortable with of the two, it would be this one, just in our context. We're like, oh, healing and liberation. Let's talk about that. Well, first, we got to talk about um, calling people to repentance. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, it, uh, it, repentance is not simply like exposing things that are evil, although that's part of it, but it's actually inviting people and calling people and modeling ourselves like a different way of living, like so it's, as John the Baptist would say, it's keeping fruit, in, that, that it's bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. So it's living in a way that is, that is like a new way to live. And I think what Jesus is essentially saying is that you and I are called as witnesses of the kingdom of God to be willing to constantly lay before people the better, truer, deeper, richer, higher way of Christ. And I say, like, this is what is possible. This is what God calls us to. This is what he's doing in my community and in my life. This is what it looks like when we try to do things outside of his goodness or his grace or his provision. We need to be people who are willing to call things evil that are evil and to not constantly be pigeonholed into, into partisan categories. If, if the only things I ever speak out against are things that, like, my side of the aisle says are bad, that's not prophetic witness. That's just punditry. That's, that's, that's politics. It's not the same thing as a person who's willing to, to call people on both sides of an issue to repentance. There's always room for us on both sides of an issue to move closer to what it means to be uh, like God on the earth. 
the Roman Catholic Church teaches that humanity's greatest problem is sin. Now, the, the Roman Catholic Church has predominantly shaped all Western churches, so that's why we find ourselves where we are. But the Roman Catholic Church believes that the humanity's greatest issue on earth is sin, and therefore the greatest need of humanity is forgiveness. Whereas the Eastern Orthodox Church would say that the greatest uh, human issue is, is uh, sickness, soul sickness, and that the greatest need, therefore, is healing. And I love Jesus' teaching here. He's like, no, it's both. The Roman Catholics and the Orthodox got it right, which is so Jesus. It's also very Anglican, very middle of the road. It's both forgiveness and it's healing and liberation. And we need to be people who recognize that both are required for whole healing and relationships. We are called to be people who not only preach words, but also offer healing. For a long time, the church has been stuck in this rut of like, I'm here to tell the truth. I'm here to preach repentance. I'm here to tell you to get your life together. And it's like, okay, that is true. But it is also true But that, that people's hearts are sick, that people feel disconnected and alone and addicted and abused, that there is trauma to be dealt with, that people need to be liberated, that if I could look inside the hearts of some of you in this room, I would see shackles and chains that have bound you for years because you grew up in a toxic home or because you grew up around alcoholism and now it's still showing up in your family today or you were abused in some way or you were abused by a former lover and all these things continue to sort of haunt you and, and track you down and you don't know how to get free of them. And I just want to say the church of Jesus Christ is a house of healing. It's a place of liberation. It's a place in which those chains are meant to fall off. We are still living in an age of miracles, friends. It's not something that happened a long time ago. There today continues to be the need for people whose eyes are closed to be opened and who cannot walk to walk and people who are bound up to be released. And when Jesus talks about demon possession, he's talking about that exact thing. Now, just to be clear, he's also talking about demons like supernatural creatures that are all over the earth that are a part of a great cosmic battle. It's part of Jesus' cosmology. You say, it's not part of my cosmology. Of course not. You're, you're modern thinking, you know, postmodern people. You, you are rationalist, post-enlightenment. You understand. But I'll tell you this. There's a lot of things that make a lot more sense if you're willing to give it a little bit of a, like square footage in your worldview, and most of the world does feel that way. So if we're going to be open-minded people, we might as well learn from our neighbors around the world who say, oh yeah, no, there's tons of things you can't explain except by the supernatural. So when Jesus is talking about systems, he's talking about demons, he's talking about the things that are behind exploitation and systemic racism and also behind uh, individual instances of abuse and drug addiction and all these things like greed and gossip, like there, there are powers. Powers, Jesus says, that are at work that need to be broken and need to be set free. And I just want to say to you, friends, that is your birthright. Like you're literally called into that. So when you're sitting with a person this week and you're like, I don't know what to, like they're in a hopeless place. And you're like, I feel so helpless. I don't know how to help. You have everything you need at your disposal in this moment to liberate that person. And I'm not trying to get weird. I'm not, not going to pull the snakes out in a minute. I'm just telling you that your birthright as a Christian is that you have the power that raised Jesus from the dead dwelling in your mortal members. And if God's power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your mortal members, he will give life to your mortal members and through it to other people. You're meant to be people who bring liberation and healing to the world. And I know that that sounds scary. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I haven't taken the classes. Good news. Neither did these guys. They all got sent out. They didn't know what they were doing. They didn't have the right theology. They didn't understand who Jesus was. They couldn't have like ever written a systematic theology. They hadn't been to seminary, but they were sent out right after Jesus coached them up, like a couple months in. He's like, okay, now you guys go do it. You go do the stuff. Now you can be reckless with the stuff. You can be dangerous. You have to be loving. You have to be wise. You have to be kind. You have to be thoughtful. But I just want to say, 
one of the things that I have come to believe is that there is far more power intrinsic in each one of us that we, if we're willing to lean into it with the faith in God, we actually can find ourselves as extensions of God's healing presence in the world. And you can totally do that and work for Marta. You can totally do that and teach second grade. You can totally do that and, and, and pour Cheerios into a bowl for the fourth time that day. Because whoever the people are that you are in front of, we're going to sing the song again in a minute. You are an instrument of peace. So make of me the hands and feet of Jesus because I want to be to the people around me what you want to be to the people around you. And that's the person that you're selling a house to this week. That's the person who you're going to be having dinner with later tonight. That's the person who you're going to crawl in bed with tonight. I want to be to the people around me. And what would it mean for your life if that was something you believed? that you actually had that capacity inside of you because the Holy Spirit was in you. And I just want to say to you, there is nothing short of that in you active right now. And that's pretty cool. Like, that's a pretty cool thing, right? Like, that's not some, like, that's actually real. If we believe what we're about to, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together. If we believe what we're about to say is actually, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. If we believe what we're about to say the power that's accessible in this room, not for self-glorification, but for the good of others. This is why we're called Emmanuel, God with us. We want to be an extension of God with us in our neighborhoods, whether that's in Tucker or Avondale Estates or East Decatur or Lawrenceville or Grant Park. We want to be God with us in those spaces, and you, friends, are that. So much of Jesus' call on our life feels like it's something that we're trying to work ourselves like up to. And Jesus says, no, no, what if I already gave you through the gospel everything you need and then you just needed to trust it? So that we could be people who come to realize that Christ essentially looks at us and as he read in Luke chapter four, he looks at us and says, the spirit of the Lord is upon you because he has anointed you to bring good news to the poor. He has sent you to proclaim release to the captives and the recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And these disciples, they took their one tunic and their flip-flops, and they went out, and they came back, and they said, guess what? It happened. What would happen if our Sunday gatherings were opportunities where we could look at each other and say, guess what happened this week? What? It happened? It happened? So, Holy Spirit... We are weak, but you're strong. And in our weakness, your power is made perfect. And when we don't know what to do, you always know what to do. And when we don't know what to say, you always have a word of life. And most of us, I think God in here, probably feel quite disconnected from one another and even from you. And so a message like this and the picture of Jesus sending people out and the thought that I'm one of these people, it's, it's kind of exciting, but honestly, it feels, I feel like I'm five clicks from it. Like first I need to get my life back together and then I need to, need to change the way I'm eating and drinking and I need to start having more time in the Bible. It's like all those things are good, but Lord, I just sense that there is just this word of faith that you want to breathe over our hearts and just say, would you just trust me that, I have, that there's more, there's always more for you that we would be people who just go deeper and deeper into the water of your presence so that we have more and more water to give to those around us who are thirsty. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.
Hello, friends. This is Matthew, the lead pastor at Emmanuel Anglican Church in East Atlanta. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We are disciples of Jesus who are seeking his kingdom and the flourishing of our neighbors. And if you want to find out more about Emmanuel and what's going on, just hop over to our website. The address is Emmanuel, that's with an I, EmmanuelATL.org. Thanks so much. God bless you. Grace and peace.